0: I always say the opposite of war is not peace, the opposite of war is a party. If you look from the strictly sort of social and cultural level, you have certain codes of conduct and
1: ideals of radical acceptance that I think we hope serves as a guide to moral behaviour outside of the club. You're listening to Interno, a podcast profiling artists who are recalibrating their internal lives and perspectives of home, belonging, and connection during the global pandemic. I'm your Host, Mary Marsilia. And in this four-part series, I speak with creative people about ideas that amplify artistic value and social duty in times of flux. My guest for episode two is Sezo, Pui woman whose practice investigates what it's like to be a modern Maori within experimental club music and sociological theory. Sese was the founder of the club night events Milkshake and Precog, as well as the Maori Australian art collective Ngati Kangaroo. She has played at arts institutions around Australia and supported Coolio, Charlie XCX and Cher on their Australian tours. And I remember she once interviewed Alain de Botton about modern day philosophy over a glass of red wine. Earlier this year, during the coronavirus peak, Sezo made the impromptu move to leave Melbourne to relocate to Dongtan, a town just outside of Seoul in South Korea, where she is now teaching English to kindergarten children. And in this conversation, we explore club music behaviours, the Biennale of Sydney, and the term edgy in contemporary art, as well as the manifestation of cultural ancestry through the dancing body. We also talk about Sezo's early days in the Brisbane dance scene and why she turned her back on the DJ world. Interno episodes are accompanied by reading notes covering the topics I discuss with guests. I've popped these into the transcript sheets, which you can find on the Making Artwork website. Interno is made possible with support from the Institute of Modern Art. Before we start, a warning: Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this episode contains the name of a deceased person. Cesar, thanks for joining me on InterNo. Hi, Maren. Thank you for having me. So you left Australia earlier this year to decamp to South Korea. When was that specifically? In March. During the height of Corona in Korea, which is crazy.
0: Like I travelled in an airplane during covid to asia we weren't allowed really to go out except for essential things and being away in itself was actually awful at first to be honest
1: <laughs> and uh, you didn't know a single person in south korea so was that a lonely experience for you it was it was lonely
0: there was a lot of culture shock, a lot of loneliness. I realized how important uh, objects are that have personality. Like, it's pretty like a pair of socks that my friend Nadia made meant so much to me in that first month. Um, a makeup bag that my friend Hannah Bronte made for me and gave me, that's like a monstera leaf, was like my favorite object.
1: <laughs> so, a pair of socks yeah. and make a makeup bag. Yeah. So have you been following any of the self-isolation habits that a lot of Australians seem to have picked up, like gardening or baking banana? I am. I'm keeping tabs on the Mm.
0: self-iso culture.
1: And I love that meme that says, uh, I
0: love how we went from making banana bread to abolish the police within a matter of days. But I'm pretty naturally iso and I've always been comfortable like nerding out in my bedroom music or book it's probably why i became a dj because you just like pretend to be social without necessarily having to interact with anyone in
1: a, on a genuine level
0: <laughs> yeah it's just it's just stupid banter it's like being in an art opening
1: yeah <laughs> but when you're yeah. when you're a dj though nobody can truly talk to you nice. because you're up on stage there's probably a yeah. bouncer in between you yeah. and you have headphones on whereas if you're an artist that you're so exhibition people will be constantly coming up to you asking you didactic things like what is your art really about and what are your underlying concepts oh. right yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's why I didn't. That's
0: exactly why I didn't become an artist for those social reasons. <laughs> Not because of my lack of ability, but also because we are DJ, like everyone thinks that you're cool, which is the opposite, but like um, they're too scared to talk to you. So it's fantastic. It's like you get all, all this social cred and all you did was press play <laughs> and no one talks to you. It's my paradise. I'm glad I did it. <laughs>
1: Look, I know, I know you've only been in Korea for a short time, but I wanted to know if you've noticed any initial comparisons between how Australians responded to coronavirus in comparison to South Korea's.
0: Koreans are really hardy people, and it's been my impression that they just soldier on. So it's meant that the country hasn't shut down even during the pandemic. Lucky that they have excellent like medical technology. So they've been able to flatten the curve while keeping their economy relatively intact. So they go on with life quite normally because they all tend to do the right thing, which is probably a reflection of like this collectivist sort of culture here. Ever since I got here, everyone's been wearing a mask Mm -hmm. from then until now, like even now when things have gotten a bit better, you know, and there was never any toilet paper rolls, (laughs) toilet rolls shortages here (laughs) because I think people would be so self-conscious that, you know, people would know that they were doing that and it would seem incredibly selfish. So I guess the, the culture is very different. Compared to Australia.
1: And what's the energy been like in terms of work and lifestyle?
0: The energy, I guess, like if you want to sum it up, it's like sensible but aware. The MO in South Korea is to work very hard all the time and that work ethic has persisted through coronavirus. So, of course, like gyms and clubs are closed, but a large number of businesses have remained open, like restaurants and cafes, Um, schools are open, private language institutes like the one I work at uh, is open.
1: So prior to your current life as a teacher in Korea, you were a leading DJ back in Australia and you played at iconic events like Dark Mofo, Mardi Gras, Next Wave Festival and places like the IMA and GOMA. So you've built an admirable career in the Brisbane and Melbourne club circuits. What made you decide to become a DJ? I had a big house party
0: in Brisbane. And a DJ came and he liked my music, which was all New Orleans bounce music. And everyone was twerking and he'd never heard of it. And it was like this really new genre that had come uh, out of the New Orleans. And um, he encouraged me to become a DJ. And I thought he was just hitting on me and I ignored him. But then a friend of mine, Alice Ether, this really amazing Indigenous activist that passed away um, a few years ago, sadly, he encouraged me. She was like, nah, he's cool. And you're being an idiot. <laughs> And I I think I was just actually now reflecting as a wiser older woman, I was probably creating some kind of stupid young person psychological barrier where I was afraid to be happy. Um, But in reality, I care a lot about what's being played. And I always had an intuitive sense of what needed to be done.
1: And you did do something. In 2013, you formed Milkshake, a club night event in 42 Valley for queer, trans and intersex and POC people living in Brisbane. Were there similar clubs like this back then? There was nothing. You either like went to the rumpus room and hung out with lots of
0: smelly uh, hippies uh, or you just went to a white guy doll wave thing. If you were into old culture, that's all that was available um, on the spectrum of the Brisbane underground. But there's nothing wrong with either of those scenes. Like I enjoyed both, but I just wanted to shake my damn ass in a way where I wasn't like an object for white male hip hop DJs. And I felt like I wanted to hear things that were dance and pop oriented, but more experimental without being pretentious, which is what I found in a lot of white sound art scenes. You can also acknowledge like, fuck, I just love Khalees and I mm-hmm. want to listen to Milkshake. And I wasn't seeing that. And, like, what's great, though, is that a lot of doll waivers and hippies ended up coming to Milkshake. So, and art school kids and the experimental sound crowd. So, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I was also acutely aware of what Venus X was doing in New York at the time, and I wanted to do the same for Brisbane. So, I just literally saw a gap in the in the Brisbane Underground market.
1: So let's fast forward to late 2019 when you decided to quit DJing. What was the reason for this? Were you like just simply over the scene?
0: Yeah, I was. I wanted to escape from a lot of the weaknesses I see in art and DJing and go for something more direct and long term in its altruism, like teaching. Sort of like, ah, I'm teaching a child and they get something and it's like immediately satisfying. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of that actually from teaching DJing and I taught DJing, uh, in prisons, uh, to young people of color, but I did have like this really strong intuition that everything would be okay. Like something just kept pushing me, uh, you know, I was getting this intuition to leave and I was like, okay, well will just teach overseas. I gradually began dialing things down with DJing in favor of sort of more long-term ideas for my future. Like I'm 32 and I wanted to start thinking of doing things that were more satisfying to me on a deeper level than partying. Not that there's anything wrong with partying. I've made a living out of theorizing about it. But like, I think as I get older, my desire for sensation-seeking goes down and I crave a quieter life. And I think I kind of held on for a bit too long when I got back, which was a mistake because I stopped trying and recycled a lot of sets. I'm really sorry to anyone who came to a set between <laughs> August and December last year. Like, it um, would have been kind of boring if you were a fan. Um, but I was in a transitional zone, okay, so <laughs> I, ne- but I don't regret DJing, like it gave me so much and
1: I especially love
0: teaching it uh, and I love empowering others with it.
1: So how do you think coronavirus will affect the future of clubbing? I've had this intuition for quite a long
0: time that clubbing wouldn't be viable in the future. Um, and that's sort of becoming true with coronavirus and I feel like it could be that way for a long time. In Taiwan is uh, where the clubbing district is, and that's where coronavirus has actually spread from in the latest spike that we've had. So all of the clubs are closed,
1: mm.
0: <laughs> and um, people feel really stupid for opening them up, right? Because for me, it's about like reading the current signs, and what I'm seeing is like it's time to put down the knobs, guys. <laughs> the world's telling us to slow down; mm, like yeah. something needs to change. So I think we need to go inward a little bit, and so I'm, I am trying to avoid uh, that world. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to sort of like go, go with the with the flow of whatever's going
1: mm. on. Yeah. Um, from the discussions I've been having with people online and offline, there's clearly two divergent groups. You know, some are antsy for things to go back to normal. They don't really like going with the flow. They just want to go back to yeah. <laughs> how it was before. People are very
0: attached to that old identity. Yeah.
1: That's- yeah that all identity, yeah. And for others, these are transformative times. People are using this corona downtime to organize their thoughts and find tangible solutions for unveiling and fixing the problems that we have, that we've always had with racial inequality and protecting trans rights and climate crisis action and sociopolitical empowerment. And even people who are in privileged positions are now reimagining new business models that elicit change. Yeah. yeah yeah. and you were one of those change makers as a dj because you used music and the club environment as vessels for liberation and activism uh what place does social empowerment or enlightenment have on the dance floor exactly
0: yeah there's heaps of ways you can look at it the club impacts the human psyche which influences human culture so from a psychological perspective You walk in and there's extremely loud music, bright lights and drugs, which force you to become present. All of that forces you to be present. Like you can't write in a club (laughs) or it would be very, very experimental (laughs) prose. Um, So, and this is essential, like for people, not only looking for like some kind of mental break or reset from their work week, which is what, like, I think a lot of commercial clubs do for people, but for society as a whole, like I, that's why I called my night precog which is literally that which comes before thought.
1: And what does this pertain to um, in terms of the current global mindset?
0: I think we've become lost in our minds, in our own (laughs) minds, uh, and our phones, which are now extensions of our minds. And it's a severe modern affliction that prevents us from experiencing all the facets of being human. Uh, So it's sort of indicated by the popularity of things like mindfulness-based practices Um, which gives you an explicit directive to um, to become aware of yourself and your surroundings and to have distance from your thoughts. And modern science is only catching up to Indigenous cultures and thinkers like Hume and Heidegger. Um, But modern science has shown us that we actually feel our way through life and rationalise decisions afterwards anyway. So in this way, I think the club environment encourages an an authentic mode of being, which hopefully... (laughs) hopefully carries through into people's lives. And then also from a psychoanalytic perspective, the club provides a stage for dreamlike and regressive behavior. So you can imagine and make real who you want to be. I mean, we all know this, like when you go to a club, you can swear like whatever you want. You can dress in S&M. You can show off like your new acne or Balenciaga sneakers Literally, yeah, a regressive behaviour like sucking on a pacifier or literally jumping around like a kid because it's fun. Like there's basically no other place in adult society you can do that. And it's healthy because people are experimenting with their identity and that's like a less rigid way of being and it's linked to idea generation. So a lot of clubs have like spawned like a lot of experimental art and uh, especially like performance art that we see like voguing and fashion as well yeah and that's social conduct yeah and then you can look from the strictly sort of social and cultural level yeah we have certain codes of conduct and ideals of radical acceptance uh that I think we hope serves as a guide to moral behavior outside of the club like for my club nights we like to advance this philosophy of broadening the idea of normal which is very different to a lot of the queer things that I see like we don't assert our own new normal. Just widening what is accepted is the goal uh, without sounding to abstract. Like yeah. there's so many ways that people get, can gather. And what is it about like being in this space and then moving the way we do? Why is it the body? Why is everyone spontaneously dancing in a really freeform kind of way? It's very intuitive. You're negotiating space. Like everyone's trying to be like some like ultimate version of themselves whilst accepting everyone else's version of themselves. So in that way, I can see how people see the club is a really
1: utopian space. Yeah, it's a utopian space, but it could also be a space for survival. Yeah. For example, the New York City ball culture in the 1980s, which was covered in that iconic documentary Paris is Burning, was transformative mm-hmm. for many. Yeah. And at these clubs, you know, um, marginalised mm-hmm. groups like African-Americans, Latinx, gay and trans people twerked and vogued and did drag to show that they were invincible. Yes, and empowered. Yeah, and empowered exactly and to show off their physical and mental prowess and for many of these people who felt socially oppressed and invisible in their daily lives Mm -hmm. during the daytime for a few hours at night at these ball parties all eyes were on them I always say the opposite of
0: war is not peace the opposite of war is a party and that's sort of why places like Germany or like in Berlin especially is now like a club district I don't think that these things are coincidences. Exactly. My theory is that our bodies it's a vessel of your inherited past. So, you know, a collection of all of your DNA and all of your inherited trauma and they inform your intuitions because um, intuitions themselves are informed by the past and they're embodied. And so for oppressed peoples, our past is a history of colonial trauma. We've already experienced an apocalypse you know, and that's affected us and that's carried through to later generations. And so I was trying to theorize about like freeform dance in these bodies in that space. And when we're dancing, it's an intuitive expression from your body. So your inherited past is present as you dance and clubbing when you're dancing around other people who respond to your movement affirms the
1: past mm-hmm.
0: in intersubjective agreement in this embodied agreement. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and when you dance with this type of agreement and agency, it becomes metamorphic and spiritual and folkloric. The fact that dance is a way for the marginalized and oppressed to make room yeah. for their bodies to have this ancestral awakening and to uh to purge trauma and colonialist echoes. It does. It purges. And I think also lately
0: that's why indigenous Music or music that's indigenous in origin that's been repurposed for the club. So you have a lot of now what's coming up, which is like ethno club duck sound. That's sort of a phrase that I use sometimes. Um, Alicia Crampton uh, or throat singer remixes, uh, stuff like that is having like a huge renaissance. And I think that's sort of like a counterpoint to Afro futuristic theories that spawned a lot of early techno and how they might have failed. Um, because techno has kind of failed um look at the techno scene and most people are white and they're white guys that have takes taken something that was like once really raw and turned it into something really nerdy and no longer fun and
1: <laughs> well let's talk about something fun i'd like to know more about the way you've interweaved your maori identity and passing of ancestral knowledge into your music projects in particular, your club night collective Nati Kangaroo. Did I say it right? Yeah, that was perfect. Nati
0: Kangaroo, yeah. Mm. Uh, first of all, Ngati is a Māori word that denotes place mm-hmm. or like a tribe. Um, so I'm Ngā, Pui, Ngā um, or Ngati is often used. So nati Kangaroo is sort of a word I made up. Uh, actually, I didn't make it up this uh, Māori author. Oh, my God, Patricia Grace. Um, She actually invented the term for Māori in Australia as part of a small, a short story that she wrote. Um, That's where I got the inspiration from. Mm.
1: So who are the other members of Ngati Kangaroo? Tyson Campbell is a friend of mine from
0: Melbourne, uh, he's a visual artist and he also writes poetry and he's a part of Nati Kangaroo and Bella Waru is a part of Nakti Kangaroo and they're a mover and do spoken word and a healer. Uh, also Nakti Kangaroo is Jamaica Moana who lives in Sydney and is a voguer and rapper. Yeah, and they're the core members of Nati Kangaroo and they've always performed with me. And actually I had the idea for Nakti Kangaroo <laughs> When I went to the Maori All-Stars versus Indigenous All-Stars match, the rugby league match that they have. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, and, like, I went. And, by the way, I love sport. Like, I love going to sport. I think art, like, needs to be as exciting as sport to be successful. (laughs) And, like, yeah, and, I go there. The atmosphere is electric and it's, like, this fusion of cultures. Mm. We need to come together more and feel unified as a group and that those kinds of games I love it because that was the first one and it was great so hopefully we can keep keep like having like more awareness of each other and more unity and that's when I decided to do Ngati Kangaroo after a footy match (laughs) and then just from the identity perspective like I want all Māori to feel like they belong to a culture even if they spent their whole life in Australia and I wanted us to throw a party where all Māori um, feel welcome Um, And also, as a way of saying to anyone else coming to the party that we exist. And we care about indigeneity and whose fenoir, like whose land it is that we live on at the moment. And then the party itself, it is experimental. And I've got Maori artists there. The experimental part comes from us being inherently experimental as Maori. So I think we've always evolved and we're voyagers and our identity is very fluid as Maori. And I think art from our most experimental artists living in Australia could really reflect that.
1: So who are the Maori trailblazers that we should be paying attention to right now? Besides Taika Waititi. (laughs) Oh, besides Taika Waititi. No, including him. (laughs) Oh, he's an intellectual dreamboat for sure. (laughs) Like there's a character that he
0: has and, you know, who he is as well as a person. That's like every Maori. Like we are are all Taika. (laughs) Taika is us.
1: (laughs) So I wanted to talk about another trailblazer, Filipino-Australian artist, Justin Schulder. He invited you to travel to Paris in July 2019 to perform with him at the Palais de Tokyo as part of his Lamine Tension residency. How did this come about and what was it like to play in an iconic gallery? best weeks of my life. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I love this so much. It's
0: crazy. I still think about it now. And I'm like, nothing will ever be better than that. So it's actually totally depressing. Um, But no, it's amazing. Justin asked me to go and I went. Um, And I guess Justin and his partner, Matt, uh, who runs House of Helmety, a fashion label, Um, they've always been really avid supporters of my DJing. Like I've played Monster Gras.
1: I don't know if you know about Monster Gras. Yeah, it's at the Red Rattler in Marrickville, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's at the Red Rattler, which is a community-run space. It's run by a lot of queers. It's sort of like this ongoing party. It's kind of revolutionary. It's an anti-Mardi Gras party because Mardi Gras has become something that's really commercial, like white, cis, gay, man, corporate space. Um, It's like an anti-Mardi Gras party for alt-queers, I guess. And like i play so many times and it's always been epic. And so Justin's someone who really, I think understands me as a DJ and as a curator. Um, I think he appreciates my sound. He knows like where it's coming from and he knows like what I'm going for. It's like experimental and raw, but I was on it.
1: He be like a small part of Justin's program. So I guess your experience in Paris turned you into a Francophile instantly. I'm guessing. Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. Well, I like, I also like the French. So yeah, we had a really good time.
0: I like how dramatic they are and it affirmed my own dramatic personality. Like I could be very emotional. I didn't realize how much I edit myself in Australia until I went to France and felt so comfortable in my own skin. I could be really emotional and it wasn't a big deal. Um, it was, like, culturally validated. Yeah,
1: and it's a very culturally <laughs> liberating country, the way that the French fight for human rights and equality called it in such a magnetising, intense way. Actually, I was in Paris during the city protests last December. And, oh! Um, yeah, and you could feel their passion for freedom of speech in just about every street. Did element. you just scooter everywhere? Uh, no, I should have. But I was just walking for hours everywhere because of the transport oh. strike. But the way that the French um celebrate and protect progressive ideas is really evident in the literature that I read from people who live there, like James Baldwin, for example, who left America because of the insane racism directed at him. And so he spent his life in Paris where he was not only accepted, but he was allowed to bloom as a writer. Totally. Um,
0: yeah, I felt really accepted. Um, like Josephine Baker went there because of the racism that she experienced in America and she just became like one of the world's best dancers and performers. But she lived in Paris, yeah, because, um, yeah, she didn't get the racism to the same extent that she did in America and she could like, you know, dance. She, she like invented the banana dance, right? She'd wear like bananas around her hip
1: <laughs> and nothing else. So as someone who lives outside of their homeland of New Zealand, um, do you have any... Mantras or sayings that help ground you wherever you may be. I think one
0: that comes to mind is Kia Kaha, mm-hmm. which means to stay strong. So that's something I often think about. Um, Maori are warm and loving, but we also have this like essence of raw strength, and you can see that in our warrior culture. Like it always helps me through because you do draw on the strength of your ancestors. It's something I'm really in love with. Like I'll watch a haka for the rugby from like 1989 and I'll cry. Like it's something I feel so connected to and it makes me really emotional and it helps me to get through. And then there's also a Maori saying, which means we're all in the same waka and that just means we're all in the same boat everyone flows in and out of each other we're all in this together
1: that's so interesting because i was interviewing sorry sorry for the first episode of interno yeah. and they're artists of filipina descent and one of their favorite tagalog sayings was kapwa which is uh, shared identity and being with others and togetherness and that's kind of similar to being in the same waka yeah
0: and I actually connect that to Heidegger as well. You know, how I was studying psychology uh, way back in the day. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and philosophy. I think I relied too heavily on Western philosophers initially, but it was all sort of a part of my path to finding my way home. Uh, you know, I really loved Heidegger at the time. I was in my mid-20s or something. And, um, and I was still very assimilated into white culture but his approach is basically what indigenous people have thought for thousands of years, but because he's white, he's put on a pedestal. But in simple terms, what we do and what he does is we don't separate the human from its environment. So we're necessarily embodied and a part of the world, uh, which runs counter to this like damaging Cartesian view that we are a mind and everything else is external to us, to our mind. Uh, this thinking thing, and then you just have like outside of you the environment and other people. You know, it has like the subject object divide.
1: It's very dissociative.
0: Yeah, it is. And um, in multi thought and Heideggerian thought, you know, the trees are our lungs, the rivers are our circulation, and so on. And we, we flow in and out of each other and our surroundings. I think if we saw things this way more, we wouldn't have the environmental and social problems we have today. This might sound radical, but I just, you know, people think the solution to global warming and things like that is like throwing more money into science. But I also, I'm not anti-science at all. I'm like pro-science by the way, but like, um, science, it still considers the world as like an object for your study and for your manipulation
1: yeah um i agree in using science for the greater good and not using it purely for advancing humanistic superiority or funding colonialist discovery tools which is what elon musk he talks about colonizing
0: uh, Mars. it's such a colonial project I'm like, I don't want to go to Mars. Like, it sounds like shit. It's a desert,
1: dude. Yeah, exactly. Like, even top scientists are against it. Uh, I went to a panel for the World Science Festival in Brisbane several years ago where an astronaut and a NASA planetary scientist said that everything in Mars is designed to kill you, yeah. like low gravity, toxins in the soil, radiation in the air, like There's absolutely nothing on that planet that is designed to make human existence possible, let alone comfortable. Yeah, it's like some
0: weird childish dream he's trying to bring about.
1: Yeah, because conquering indigenous lands on Earth isn't enough.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like just like exhaust the resources in one place and then go and like destroy another. Maybe what's more useful is fundamentally rethinking the relationship to the world and others.
1: This series on our relationship with the world through objects and place and actions, it reminds me of Banjalang activist John Mundane, who also talks about the representation of objects and how they connect to the identities of people and places. It makes me think about what you said earlier about the kinship with the objects Mm. that your friends gave you before you moved to South Korea, Mm. like Nadia Hernandez's socks and Hannah Bronte's makeup bag. Mm. Um, I've always believed that handover objects have the spirit of the giver imprinted onto them. Mm. And when you touch these things, you activate memories and feelings of longing. They took
0: on a whole new significance that I've always taken for granted in the past. (laughs)
1: Um, I'm interested to see how you maintain these significant connections because even though you're living in Korea now, you still collaborate with people in Australia. And I believe you're working with Nadia, who's based in Sydney, on this uh, writing project called EDGY. Mm. Can you talk about this or is it too early? No.
0: No, we have an ongoing Google Doc that it's sort of like a half shared journal, which we love, by the way, I highly recommend doing something like this with a friend. Um, It's how we stay updated with each other's lives. And we literally just journal at each other and like what's come out of it. Um, By the way, I love Nadia. She's like my spiritual sister and she's an incredible artist. I feel so happy for her. She's been able to traverse this so-called public art arena and the so-called quote-unquote serious Uh, contemporary art world yeah that was a quite an intentional move on her behalf too I think she wanted to see if she could rise to that challenge uh be accepted by the world that world her and I have been reflecting on that move as well like recently we've become really interested in these divides and I think that we especially resent the term edgy to describe work that isn't like considered cool or underground enough so Nadia's work for example it's very colourful And for that reason, it it can be like um, regarded as commercial or has commercial appeal, right? And she knows that, she's aware of it. Um, Or it might not be called edgy to a kind of punk crowd, right? But she's always been a political artist though at heart. And if you look at her work properly and anyone that knows anything about South American art knows that her work is actually very deep and comes from a long lineage of Latin American artists and practices but she of course has her own really well-developed personal practice. At the end of the day, she's a woman of color and she's creating art and her country is in ruins at the moment in Venezuela. So yeah. And I'm we're just like, what could be more edgy <laughs> than that? And like, so we wanted to conduct an investigation into the concept of edgy and why we think it's a shallow term often used by cool
1: white artists, we've noticed, to denigrate Indigenous art that they don't yes. understand. In the same way that the music industry says urban. Totally. Urban categories. So we
0: think it's a sort of millennial extension of the idea that Indigenous art should be termed craft or is like folk art. Um, and we think many poc, like it's sort of similar to how many poc have issues with the term contemporary for similar reasons or traditional artists, things like that because um, our traditional art is our contemporary art it still has meaning for us mm. now
1: well interestingly the Biennale of Sydney has reopened to the public here in Sydney after the coronavirus hiatus this one's curated by Brooke Andrew who wanted to topple the word edge ah yeah so there you the go. theme <laughs> of the Biennale is "Niran," which means edge from his mother's nation the Wiradjuri people oh. <laughs> someone's already doing it <laughs> okay That's good though. Yeah, it's really good because Brooke worked with artists of the diaspora and Black and Indigenous artists to present a biennale that puts many of their ideas and voices, which many in the Western art canon would consider to be peripheral or edgy, in the centre of its own narrative. So it gives the power back to marginalised people in a big way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, the word edgy can also be looked at as another word for revolution or truth-telling. Actually, I was listening to a time-sensitive podcast episode with Ghana artist Ibrahim Mahama, where he discussed the uh, importance of making works that bring him in tandem with the generational shifts in the world. And his professor at art school taught him, ironically, that there is no point in mm. being in the room full of artists talking to one another about their artworks or saying, someone stole my style and all that productive yeah. stuff. Oh my god. I have so many opinions on this. Like I'm sure yeah. you do. <laughs> So the takeaway is that if artists want to make art that will become revolutionary, then mm-hmm. they should look outward, you know, and continue having dialogues with non arts people like Botanists and engineers, or reading up on quantum theory and climate crisis, because these avenues do extend our roles in society and revamps our attitude um, towards materials. Like in my research, I see more artists working with seaweed scientists or design ethicists and biotech companies. So, yeah. Uh, or simply I'm seeing people using their COVID downtime to recalibrate the way that they think about their practices in a wide-worlded sense, which is partially what this podcast is. About?
0: You know, with COVID, artists have been classed as non essential workers, which I know the art world's up in arms about, but I kind of find it a little bit funny. And like COVID's also intensified current social issues. Yeah. So <laughs> things to do with like income inequality, you know, and then there's police brutality, racial injustice, and so on. But to put art on that level, I think we do need to like, I want to say this so much art really is inessential. I'm sorry. I know that people want to say like it's wrong for capitalism or the economy to determine what art gets made because it leaves it to the market or like what's marketable isn't always culturally valuable or like large corporations will only fund what's strategically good for them. But like by the same token, I think artists also have a responsibility to prove their worth. Like the world doesn't owe you jack shit because you call yourself an artist. Why should anyone spend money on what you're doing if it doesn't positively affect their lives? ideally art would be essential and it can be essential but I don't know only good art is essential and I know what's good is always up for debate but like that's where we come in right Mary?
1: I agree I agree um as an arts worker I find something like the Biennale of Sydney tremendously essential it is revolutionary but it's also long overdue and For a person of colour to experience a fully formed, uh, edgeless, (laughs) filled with a myriad of uh, marginalised voices that are actually usually invisible and unheard in contemporary art is intensely empowering and liberating. Um, So thinking back to what you said earlier about your inherited past coming through your body as you dance and it being a vessel... I feel the same way when I see the Biennale artworks, you know, by um, Teresa Margolis, uh, Carla Dickens, Huma Baba, uh, Bride Fuata, Manuel Ocampo. It's like they become a vessel for me too to revisit the stories of my childhood in the Philippines and Singapore, or to learn about intergenerational trauma from the eyes of trans people and First Nations people, for example. Actually, Ibrahim Mahama is showing an art space mm. in Cukute Island at the moment during the Biennale. So I've learned a lot about labor and trade history and economics by reading the stories behind his massive installation of Jude Sachs. So how we judge true artistic value is definitely subjective. Yes, but personally, I'm drawn to artworks that jolt my mind into taking action either by educating myself or unlearning my biases or reactivating my role within society. So I think these are the works that endure. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I care care so much about artistic value that I think artists need to try really hard to show that, what they're doing is important. And like, stop penchillantly stomping their feet saying, give me money. And I know it's not a really popular stance. And like many people will think it's surprising for me to say this kind of thing, but I come from a really underprivileged background. I see people busting their asses every day to make the measliest living. Like I'm sure everyone would rather be an artist, right? Um, But they can't, like they're trying to survive. And I think artists need to be way more honest about what they're doing. And the value of it to others or initial lack of value, like and what the world really owes them. Like I see so many artists as well. Sorry, I'm on my soapbox now. Like they're playing the system for based on some identity marker or Instagram following. Yeah. I agree with what you said that um, sorry, that Ga- the man from Ghana was
1: Ibrahima
0: Like if mm-hmm. it's important enough to you, yeah. you can figure out a way for it to get made. Um, And accept that not everyone is going to get it at first because that's the nature of of like something truly new. Uh, You're seeing something from a perspective that no one's seen it before and that's what makes it important and not everyone's going to get that. And that's how it works. (laughs) That's how human minds work.
1: (laughs) I wanted to end this episode by asking you about your internalized thoughts during this isolation and pandemic time and what you think the future could look like ideally based on what is happening in the present
0: uh corona has sort of been like the mother earth telling us to like stop and what happens like when we have to stay inside as we go inward and i think that there needs to be more of that like people just being really at home with themselves and it's forced people to become present. You've seen a lot of creativity coming out of this period. I think that's related to people, yeah, thinking more intuitively. It's trying to teach us the importance of those interactions and, like, you know, when I talk about the club, it forces you to be present and everything is heightened. We're too far in our minds and in our phones. Things like physical presence have taken on this whole new value now and that's a lesson that we all needed to be taught.
1: And hopefully we'll continue to learn. Sezo, thanks for joining me on Antono. Thank you, Marian. I'd like to conclude this episode by reading Tusitala, a poem by Selena Tusitala Marsh. This poem was published in 1999 in the book Literature, Cultural Politics and Identity in the New Pacific. Tusitala. Teller of tales that I never heard till yesterday, born away for another life. Today, the tale I tell is theirs and yours. A way of seeking some more of Samoa, of my sacred center. Today, the tale I tell will book its way through tongued histories sanctioned mysteries, spaces of silence, timeless lies, the la to see. Tell the book or the spirit of Brown, in theory, in creativity, we make our sound renowned. Turner is produced by myself, Mariam Arcilia. I'd like to thank Alex Holt, Sarah Thompson, and Talia Pierce at the Institute of Modern Art for supporting this project. Interno takes place on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation.